as it turns out, I have rather fond memories of quite a few evenings at the Ritz <laughs> that I'd like to share with you. One in particular comes to mind when a very different side of the young Princess Elizabeth was revealed. <laughs> and I'm sure everyone would love to hear about that. <laughs> yes, they would, Lilibet, which is why I'm telling it. It would miss the point entirely of why we're all here tonight. To celebrate you. <laughs> Welcome to the Crown the Official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is the show that follows the sixth and final season of the Netflix series, The Crown, episode by episode. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, speaking to many of the creatives involved and diving deep into the stories. Today, we'll be talking about episode eight, titled Ritz. Whilst holidaying in Mustique, Princess Margaret suffers a stroke and is suddenly forced to reassess her lifestyle. Margaret is keen to recover in anticipation of her glamorous 70th birthday party. But the Queen worries that her party-loving sister will struggle to kick the habits of a lifetime. As Margaret's health continues to decline, she finds herself slipping back into her memories, back to her secret night out with her sister during the biggest party in history. VE Day 1945. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't managed to watch episode 8 yet, I suggest you do that now or very soon. Coming up on this episode of The Crown, the official podcast, we'll hear from director Alex Gabassi. <laughs> you know, and then she went for it because it wasn't in the script again. And then she embraces that. And that's what I talk about actors that just like to play. Yeah. Producer Martin Harrison takes us underground to the pink sink. It was two very, very hot, sweaty days. <laughs> As you say, it's not crown-like in any way. It's quite a surprise. And we'll say farewell to Margaret with the fabulous Leslie Manville. The circle is absolutely complete. And not just my circle, but that I've finished off the circle that was Vanessa and Helena and I. But first, I sat down with Meryl Shabani Clare, who co-wrote this episode with Peter Morgan. To be honest, I always had my eye on that episode. Did you? Yeah, I love Margaret. I love the sisters' episodes. Peter's just created two such distinctive characters who you really want to spend time with but particularly Elizabeth when she's with Margaret she's just like that bit more fun so he's built that up over the series so I guess I was really up for taking Elizabeth and Margaret on that final bit of their journey together I've got a sister who I'm really close to so that interested me too that theme in it which feels really important in the episode the theme of sisterhood which I was really interested to explore and also just you know writing the final episode for a character I wanted her to go out with a bang yeah, I think we did that. You did a great job. Yeah, it's a great episode. What was there in the research with regards to VE Day and, and the girls and the sisters? Yeah, well, it was an exciting idea to use this 1945 VE Day flashback because it just occurred to me like, oh my God, this is a massive crown story and we've never used it. Mm. I was like, it's just waiting to be used, you know, because it's so extraordinary that they were actually out there with the crowds 
I mean, it's unthinkable now. Yeah. The kind of good thing is that there's a certain amount of information about it. Like Margaret herself was interviewed about it and talked about it being, you know, this incredibly joyous night and about how she was jealous of Elizabeth because she was wearing her army uniform and Margaret just had to wear civilian clothes. She was jealous <laughs> yeah. about that. And she talked about like grabbing a hat off a serviceman. You know, we've got a few details. Like yeah. we know they went out with Townsend and Porchy and various chaperones. And we know they joined the crowds outside the palace to call for the king. And we know that they went across Green Park and went to the Ritz. Ready? Margaret, I'm not sure this is a good idea. Come on, the war is over. We have to celebrate. What if something goes wrong? We'll have Porchy and Peter Townsend with us. What could possibly go wrong? So we know they went to the Ritz and I think their cousin talks about them doing the conga through the restaurant full of well-to-do people upstairs and out through the kitchens and that nobody noticed who they were. That's amazing. Yeah, we've got that basic information and then that kind of meant that we could think about what happened inside the Ritz and we discovered that... During the whole of the Second World War, there were lots of sort of kind of subterranean night spots that cropped up all around in these London hotels in the basements, which were kind of subversive and bohemian and a load of fun stuff happened, artists, bohemian types. So we thought, well, there actually was a bar like this called the Pink Sink in the basement of the Ritz. So I thought, well, what if our characters went down there? (laughs) Love it. It's the way that the tone of this, it's incredibly sad watching Margaret's health just yeah. plummet. But you have that counteracted with this brilliant tone that you've written of it's light, it's cheeky, there's bits yeah. of comedy in there. Yeah. And it's just it just balances everything out so brilliantly. Even, you know, when they're at the table with Queen Mum and stuff, and Queen Mum's going, oh, she's, what did she say? Kind of thing. You know, all those kind of little moments sort of thing where Margaret's kind of not, she might be kind of her health is going, but she's not. Yeah. And the way she kind of sort of teases Elizabeth with telling the story. And yeah, it ain't my fault. The way that you get back to VED and back to, you know, it's, it's really cleverly and brilliantly. Do you mind talking a little bit about kind of how you do that? The character that Peter's created in Margaret means like she's really quite easy to write because she's so naughty and cheeky and she wants to try and find fun in the darkest of situations. Like she's fun because she's more of a rebel than anyone else in her family. She's more willing to say the stuff that no one else wants to say. Yeah. So she's always fun to put into a scene because she ruptures it. (laughs) I guess I feel like when you're writing such a sad story, it's actually more sad if the character isn't feeling like really sorry for themselves and is able to kind of laugh at what's going on. Mm-hmm. That is actually more sad to watch because we, we want to make the audience cry rather than um, watch the actors cry. Yeah. And Margaret's just a gift in that way because she's so funny. Yeah. And also you've got the relationship between the sisters, which has always been, they know one another so well, it's quite playful. They like, well, Margaret definitely likes winding Elizabeth up. Yeah. Putting that in this really tragic scenario just sort of felt right. When you say Margaret's really easy to write for, do you also have Leslie Manville in mind on this season, having, you know, written for her in season five? Totally. There's a funny thing that, like, when you write for a new cast who we haven't seen playing the parts yet, it's weird because you can't help but write for the old cast. (laughs) And then you see them and then you're like, oh, wow, they're amazing. They're they're totally (laughs) different, but they're amazing. And then you kind of, because we'll be writing as the series is filming still then you start 
to settle into thinking of those actors as the characters. I guess it's the same for viewers. It takes a while to settle into mm-hmm. the new cast. But then because this was the second season with the same cast, yeah, totally had Leslie's Margaret in my head. How does that inform how you write her then? In what way? Leslie brings new things to Margaret. I feel like she gives us a glimpse of her vulnerability that I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. So she lets you see that kind of little gap between her being really, really funny and then what's underneath, which is actually, she's a very vulnerable person. Yeah. So there's a real beauty in that, the way she plays it. You really feel for her, I think. Yeah, this is amazing. She's amazing. But then at the same time, she's also incredibly funny and quick-witted and you wouldn't mess with her. See? There's that look again. I'm fine, Lilibet. Bouncing back on the way up, not on the way out. Next, I wanted to ask director Alex Gabassi about working with Leslie Manville on this incredibly moving episode. What were the conversations that you had with Leslie with regards to before you started filming this episode and what what you wanted and also what it would require from her? I think the first thing for us was to map what these strokes would mean and where they would appear and how much you would... This was a very, very practical approach first. Yeah. How depleted you would be, how long that will be for, how long it would take your rehabilitation. Yeah. So then the audience could sort of follow and this would be felt and not just jump from one to another. And how they connected then back to her flash, not flashbacks, but her memories of of that night. Yeah, exactly. Where would those memories come and how would they feel uh, warranted in that sense during the narrative? So those things were important. And this is the sisters episode, isn't it? It's, It's about their connection and where it all started, I suppose. How much that secret stayed between them and what that represents. And I think in our conversations was very much, for the actor, for Leslie, was very important to understand not only how physically that would have affected her, but how much in terms of her psyche and psychologically and and even Mm memory-wise. You know, you get depleted and how much you cannot say the things you say. She's so always so witty and brilliant. And in this case, she would have to slow down eventually in her delivery. So those things were really thought through and we we mapped out and we, we knew more or less where they would come. Did you shoot the VE day stuff? first or was it not a case of like one was first the next was that it was kind of just sort of was in the the middle it's all over the place it's the weird place (laughs) yeah a weird thing because you i tell you what happened that that v day night Mm -hmm. was shot outside london we built that piccadilly circles which is phenomenally great done by frame store and all that you know at the end but we did do a lot of stuff that was very much grounded in that we had a sort of square like that and and thankfully on that day, Piccadilly had a particular thing that makes it so much VE day because you had the statues covered by some kind of construction that um, they did for the day. So we did that and we found some kind of Regent Street-like street that we yeah. could then add to it. And the Crown can give you that, only the Crown. So we had like three, 350 extras on that day. Oh, wow. 
all dressed in 1940s costumes. <laughs> and we had those buses and I had, so all those things. So I had two days to shoot the exterior and one day to shoot some interiors of what would be the Ritz. Yeah. And when I finished that, the last day, which I finished at the warm one, I had to go straight to Paris to shoot the next day, a scene for episode one. Wow. <laughs> so those scenes were shot in between other scenes that I shot of, of Margaret. Wow. Also just a, a note on how brilliant Bo and Viola are as well as as the young Margaret and, and Elizabeth as well, the kind of vibrancy that they... You know, you just, yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great through line as well. You can kind of see them. I mean, in terms of how much she looks like Claire Foy as well is kind of mental. <laughs> it's, it's so, I was like, have they just done like that kind of weird facial stuff that they can do to de-age people on Claire? And it's like, no, 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 that's a different actress. Like, wow. Yeah. It's uncanny. It is uncanny. I think the first thing we shot with them was the one arriving at the Ritz, mm -hmm. uh, at the ball room. Yeah. And the two moments that I see, I see just Claire Foy, and she's such a, she's, she's such a brilliant a actress, uh, Viola, that she actually, I think she studied Claire's, the way that she, you know, he invites her to dance yeah. and she goes, you know, yeah, is that Claire Foy? And, yeah. then, and then when he says, well, I'll go with you to the, you know, cloakroom, yeah. she goes, no need, you know, that, <laughs> yeah. no need. Yeah. And you go like, how did you do it? And uh, I was so, so happy with that. Look at how I'm dressed. Do you think they will let us in? Of course. Just tell them who you are. That is the one thing I am not going to do. Then you're going to have to bet your eyelids a little. Go on. I love as well how, you know, even through how heightened with emotion this this episode is around Margaret and her her health, she never loses that twinkle or the comedic nature, the tone, it's all there. And in Leslie's performance, the way she does that is just fantastic. It's mm. never lost. It's always there. Mm. It's really brilliant. Is all that on the page or is part of that Leslie's, you know, interpretation and brilliant performance and, and playfulness with this character? I'd say it's more Leslie. I think what the script gives you a certain things that you just because the good great thing about Peter's script and and in this case Peter and Mario Shabani is mm -hmm. that they don't tell you you know what to feel it is all said in the page in terms of dialogue so you basically take what you want and you put in and I think what for me was for us was very important and especially in the editing process was that again how much do you see the regression and then progression back to your former self? Mm. And that was given by her wit and humor. Even when she comes from the second stroke, she's in that dinner, uh, lunch. Oh, no, with the with, Queen Mom. With and the Queen Mom. And what did she say? What did she say? You know, yeah. And then, and also, you know, gone with the days of heels, you know, gone with the dirty feet, you know, is, is that kind of thing. You know, this is, what you, this is gold. Yeah. And then adding, uh, you know, telling her at the end, it just starts singing again, you know, oh, yeah, my you know, and then she went for it because it wasn't in the script again. And then she embraces that. And that's what I talk oh. about actors that just like to play. Yeah. And... Seeing as I'm going to be dead soon anyway, I thought I might as well go out with a bang. It's my 70th birthday this year, and 
I've decided I want to celebrate it with a nice big party. What? At the Ritz. Because we love the Ritz, don't we, Lilibet? Do we? We do. We have such special memories. My faults. Have I missed something? Still to come on this episode of The Crown, the official podcast. We'll hear more about finding light moments in Princess Margaret's final years with actor Leslie Manville. But first, I met producer Martin Harrison, who's been a huge part of The Crown since the beginning. Did you ever imagine that your journey with it would last, what, nine years? Oh, my God, no. I mean, I come from a a family of small R Republicans, and it's kind of like the notion of anybody being interested in the royal family was just really curious to me. Yeah. Until I became obsessed myself. (laughs) (laughs) So the show made you interested in the history and the stories and the characters? Very much so. And just the whole kind of constitutional questions Mm. and the and the, the pressures it puts on the on the royal family. Yeah, yeah. That was a yeah, it was a huge factor. Do you think that's almost a representation of because one of the things I wanted to ask you was why you think it's resonated with the audience so well while The Crown is such a popular show around the world. What draws audiences in? I think in a way it is essentially because it's a family drama. It's about family relationships that all of us can identify with across cultures. But it's a family dynamic that has this added, almost uh, like a straitjacket of all the establishment and constitutional pressures that surround it, which make it even more dysfunctional. Mm. And so I think we're all fascinated by dysfunctional families. I think it gives us (laughs) reassurance. And in a way, the royals always struck, always strike me as being probably the exemplary (laughs) dysfunctional family because of that. Yeah. I so, mean, impossible, impossible constraints are put on them. Yeah. It's the final season. Is yes. it, how does it feel for you that it's the end or it's coming to the end? Really hard. It's really hard. I mean, obviously, for all of my career, I've been freelance. So I've been nomadic. It's been a very transient life of three months here, six months there. And now I've just done nine years. <laughs> uh, it's the first time I've ever really had a long permanent job. Yeah. I've left it very late, as you, <laughs> as you might say. A personal way, but it's also very difficult. My wife died uh, two months into the beginning of the show. So I started so in August 2014 and she died in December. And the show was an enormous, it was like a life raft for me. Uh, and, and so there was a inc- huge amount of displacement and and kind of postponing things and just, you know, kind of sublimating myself through the show. And now I realise, nine years later, that perhaps I've got to kind of just also figure that out as well. Yeah. Because I've just actually put the whole thing on a kind of major hold because the show was just so all-encompassing. I mean, it was hugely absorbing, as you can imagine. Yeah. So there's that as well. It's a, a rare beast in the sense that so many people were repeat offenders and kept coming back. But that shows how much... They enjoyed the experience and how much much they got from it. Uh, So there's a lot of people I'm going to really, really miss, hugely. Those Uh, WhatsApp groups have got to keep going. (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. Um, And also everybody works so well together. The film industry, like most of the creative 
industries, you know, it has its fair share of kind of egotists and narcissists. But curiously, I would say the Crown, on the whole, had none of those. You know, 300 people plus working on it, and every one of them was actually a delight. And that's an incredible rare thing. And I think the reputation spread across the country in terms of people would talk about the Crown and how they wanted to get on it because it seemed such a, a joyful show, and it was. If people are listening to this, you know, and they go, you know, they might not be fully aware of the role, the role of a producer, because different producers can do different things on a production. Yes. For you specifically, what does your role as a producer on this show involve? My m- most of my experience and my greatest strength is as an assistant director. I was an assistant director for thirty years, and so I kind of meld the two roles together. So I'm, I'm very much a kind of producer on set because I'm actually the first AD on set, particularly with Alex. He and I worked very well together, and I think for him it was good that decisions could be made very quickly yeah. and without having to kind of have a committee about it. What kind of decisions then? You know, is that in terms of Give if you got an example of what kind of decisions you'd be able to kind of make on the ground. Well, for example, in the uh, 1945 stuff, I mean, there was a whole big conversation about how on earth we do that because to do the street sequences with yeah. such big crowds, it's very difficult in central London, particularly doing something like The Crown, which is attracting so much attention. Mm-hmm. And it was my suggestion that we go to Hull. And I only knew of Hull as a possibility because... About 15 years ago, I scheduled um, Royal Night Out that Julian Gerald directed. Yeah. I did the initial schedule for that. And I remember them talking about Hull as a possibility. So I mooted this idea of going to Hull, which was a quite a big thing because it's it means overnights for the crew. It's a four-hour travel. So it has huge schedule repercussions. Yeah. But it was the right decision. I'm yeah. really glad we did it. And I think those elements of the um, episode eight, the 1945 sequence, the, the walking from the palace to the to the club and then returning. I think they work really well. And I think you capture the the kind of crazy carnivalesque atmosphere of P night. Green Park or Trafalgar Square? I say the Ritz. It's where all the most elegant people go and it's St. Jeeves in Worcester. Good plan, the Ritz it is. Shouldn't we be inside the palace? Why? So we can wave to mummy and papa. Honestly, what's the matter with you? Can't you be irresponsible just once? There are brilliant moments, I think, across the show where for a moment or for a scene that we almost step out of the crown world. There's not lots of them, but there are slightly outside of what we expect. And I think that that wonderful scene in Pink Sink Beneath the Ritz is one of those. On a production level of pulling that together with the extras, the dancing, is there choreography, all that kind of stuff, the way that it's shot, where it's shot. Do you mind talking a little bit about... Of course. Well, I'd have to give a a really big shout out for Polly Bennett, who is our choreographer. The huge vitality and energy of that uh, sequence is down to her. I think what we did as producers is we facilitated everything she needed to make that work. Wow. So... You know, you do shows where you have a choreographer in and they get like two hours at the beginning <laughs> of the day while while we're lighting a set. But with this, we set up, we had a huge marquee on the back lot. We set up proper rehearsals with the key dancers, of which there were a lot of key dancers. It wasn't, I mean, we filled in with maybe 110 other 
supporting artists. Yeah. But there was probably about 20, 25 uh, dancers yeah. in there. Uh, and Polly had the opportunity of just probably really exploring that. And Alex, as a director, was really happy for her to do that, just to explore it, to invent, to have fun. I mean, he's Brazilian. He was the perfect director for doing a big, big party scene. Yeah. I mean, Mardi Gras just flows through his <laughs> through his veins. You know, it was perfect in that respect. Uh, we shot it in the Phoenix Club in Charing Cross, mm-hmm. uh, which is a beautiful club. It's great, but it's a tiny space. So yeah. it involved an incredible amount of... Zen from everybody involved because <laughs> it was so claustrophobic down there and so full of people and health and safety officers getting hysterical and as you can imagine. <laughs> also, it pulls into action lots of other departments. It's the costume department's efforts and then and then the crowd makeup department. I mean, it, there's a lot of people have done a huge amount of work and then fabulous musicians. Yeah. Yeah, it was... It was a, it was a hard but a joy, a joy, an absolute joy. <laughs> no one's going to come away from filming that with a without a smile on no, their face, are they? No, and it was two very very hot, sweaty days. <laughs> As you say, it's not crown like in any way. It's quite a surprise, but it works. But it works brilliantly, I think. Come on, Porty, let's get her out of here. No, don't leave her. Look how happy she is. And finally, here is our Princess Margaret for the final time, the wonderful Leslie Manville. Oh, Leslie, it's so great to get to chat to you about Margaret again and this performance in this final season. How does it feel knowing that it's, that's it, that's it with this character for you? I feel like I've really done her at this extraordinary time of her life, which was less showy but more about the internal turmoil and loneliness that she was going through. So, I, yes, I'm all right with saying goodbye, but it's obviously a massive part of my, my life, not just for the two years of doing it, but mm. for the huge amount of time that I knew before that that I was going to play her and reading all the books and just basking in... Margaret Land yeah. was so, so pleasurable and interesting and funny. And obviously, I always loved the series anyway. And going back when I knew I was going to play her and watching Vanessa and Helena and just watching the whole thing and the kind of real in my bones thrill of knowing that I was going to take on that baton and. <laughs> do Margaret to the very end, you know, (laughs) to her dying days. But what I was never prepared for was the quite extraordinary script Mm. that Peter Morgan wrote for Margaret and Elizabeth. And what's so wonderful about it is that it's a very personal and intimate love story about these two sisters. Yeah. they're Elizabeth and Margaret, but they're not the queen and a princess. They're two sisters. And the scenes are just quite beautiful. Um, so that's been an amazing privilege to do, especially with, you know, my longtime friend, Imelda. There's just a beautiful energy of the two of you 
you know, on screen and and that history and friendship, genuine friendship, yes. it comes through, you know, in your performances and that warmth that you, you know, in real life have for each other, I think. It's great when you have that with someone because you get so much for nothing. You know, you don't yeah. have to kind of sit and work it out how <laughs> how that affection and warmth and, and humour. Yes. You know, Margaret and Elizabeth are funny. They're both funny women. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, Margaret led a life that gave her so many more occasions to revel in that humour and her sheer naughtiness. And of course, Elizabeth spent a life having to rein all of that in and be proper, but you you get to see them twinkling together yeah. and it's it's quite something. With the Rip story, we see Elizabeth kind of, the memory kind of pop back and it's been kind of ignited by Margaret mentioning it. And then it comes up time and time again, and she seems determined to tell this secret that they've had for most of their life. Why do you think it's been written like that for her to want to reveal this? Yeah, and you get the feeling very much that that Elizabeth does not want Mm -hmm. this story to be told. Well, I mean... It's got Margaret naughtiness written all over it, (laughs) but I think it's the deeper significance of it is that, well, on some levels, it's Margaret saying, we're not so dissimilar. Mm -hmm. You've just had to live a different life because of the role that you've had to play and the responsibilities that you have. Mm -hmm. But I think it's mainly because Margaret wants people to know that there is that side in Elizabeth Mm -hmm. because pretty much everyone, apart from the real inner circle and Elizabeth's very close friends, see the queen. That's what they see. Mm. And they don't see the woman who did something rather wonderful and for that time daring and risque and bold Mm. and fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that Elizabeth has had a life of of no fun, yeah. but that's not so much certainly the public perception of yeah. her. And uh, I think it's also about saying, you know, we may be different in a lot of ways, but there is this little seed there of you and I being quite similar. It was quite a night. Do you remember? Of course I remember. We almost lost you. And then we very much found you. The real you. The you that you gave up in order to be the other you. Yes, all right. Don't you miss her? She was so much fun. Oh, it ain't my fault. Well, even as her health is deteriorating, your Margaret hasn't lost that ability to that cheekiness that kind of Um, trying to kind of um whether that's with a comment or trying to tell this story about the Ritz this night that they had at the Ritz and and it's you can see the little kind of twinkle in her eye that she's she's just trying to get one over on her sister (laughs) you know till the very last moment that's right I mean even when she's ill you know but I humor and that level of real, genuine, warm naughtiness about yeah. her, especially with her sister. Yeah. You know, it, it just didn't diminish even through her illness. And I under, I get that. If you are that person, I think Margaret must have been incredibly angry about the thought of having to leave the world. Yeah. And not just because she 
loved life, but because I think she must have felt that those latter decades of her life were a little unfulfilled. You know, she didn't have what other people in the yeah. family had. She didn't have the longevity of a relationship, the solidity of somebody who you may not share a bed with every night, as Elizabeth and uh, Philip didn't, but somebody who's there for yeah. you. And she didn't have that, and that was lonely for mm. her. And, and also that thing of being ill and looking ill. Yeah. I mean, there's that iconic image of her in the chair. The glasses. Wheelchair with the glasses. Yeah. And, you know, she said that she did, she almost covered every bit of her face that was possible because she didn't want men to see her. And that's heartbreaking. What was your preparation for that side of it, you know, in terms of these? She went through a, a number of strokes that had different effects on her. Mm physically her speech and mm. and your performance is extraordinary it's so delicate and beautiful and tender and the way Thank that you, you take her through those what was your kind of kind of preparation for that as well and also speaking with Alex your director you know about that as well yeah and, and how to navigate that journey for her it was a tough journey to navigate because an episode is not as long as you think and you know it really does very very delicately and beautifully as you say chart her decline mm. But stroke is a very complex thing. So I spoke to speech therapists. I spoke to experts who work in stroke units, medical teams who bring people round after strokes and sort of get them walking and talking again. And I spoke to about two or three stroke victims who had had different levels of severity with their strokes. And uh, oh, that was... Um, quite difficult really bet, yeah because they uh, one gentleman that i spoke to everything was there it was like all the words were in his head every thought was in his head but he couldn't say it mm. and the frustration that he went through so it's it was um fascinating to do that mm. and nick who's one of our uh, dialect coaches came with me to those sessions just to have that person there to yeah. monitor it and, you know, and then I worked with the hair and makeup team, how we would deal with somebody's face, especially yeah. when they've had a very bad stroke, because yeah. there's collapse, there's there's mouth collapse and there's eye collapse. And we wanted to go for that. And if we thought it was too much, we'd, you know, we'd pull back. Yeah. And so, as I say, there's all these degrees of it, really. But the thing that is so beautiful about the script that he's written, he could have just written a, a tragic script. Yeah. But he's written a script where you absolutely see the Margaret that you saw Vanessa do in episode one. You see that Margaret now. Yeah. Still. You're absolutely right. You can see that character, yeah. personality. Yes. Sparkle yeah. is still kind of pushing through. Yes. I mean, that's... What's been wonderful about playing Margaret is because it's like she's one of the few characters I've played where you can sort of say, well, she's sort of a bit of everything. <laughs> you know, she is passionate and wants to be gorgeous and the life and soul of the party. But then she's also the other side of it is this person who's going, OK, right. So here I am. Um, what's happening? 
who am I going to see today? The diary's empty. Uh, oh, the dog's here. Oh, I'll have a drink. It's just so brilliant. But I do, going back to what you said, first of all, I feel the circle is absolutely complete. And not just my circle, but that I've finished off the circle that was Vanessa and Helena and I. There's one, I was talking to someone about this brilliant scene today, and, which is when she's searching for a cigarette and you find one in a coat pocket and it's almost like this orgasmic reaction <laughs> to finding this cigarette. And it's so, it's such a great moment and such a great performance. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was good. But the, the great thing about working with Alex Gabassi, I mean, we've had amazing directors on this. I've had a brilliant time with Alex Gabassi. He's been just, oh, so insightful and just little, little things. And because we had a good relationship, we were always talking about a scene and chatting about moments. And so I felt I had this absolute freedom, you know, yeah. and a moment like that, you know, you can't, you could, you know, be pedantic and script it and everything, but it was just, you know, she's hunting for cigarettes and she finds one and you just think somebody who's been a chain smoker all her life has just suddenly been told not to smoke ever again. And she, and it's so great that he said, no, why don't we, she finds it in an old smelly jacket and it's a really crumpled up old cigarette that's probably all dried up and awful. It's the way she kind of, almost kind of like straightens, straightens it out. out. It's <laughs> been in the coat pocket. It's like that. <laughs> What was it like filming those last scenes with Imelda, you know, having those last kind of moments together? I can, I find it really hard to talk about them because they were oh, so moving and emotional. I mean, I cry at anything anyway, but <laughs> it was just, there was a kind of, not in a kind of um, faux way, but there was a great calm on those days. You know, we were just really just, we just knew how to do those scenes. Yeah. You know, it was um, very special doing it all with Imelda. And, you know, I have sisters, so I understand that relationship mm -hmm. really well. Yeah. They're some of the best scenes that I've ever had to do in my wow. career. So they mean a lot to me. Hello, you. Well, stop it. We'll have you up and out of here in no time. No. I'm afraid it's serious this time. I can feel it. Or can't feel it. Or like... I can't feel anything. Or see anything. My body's... Deserting me one limb at a time. The doctors tell me you aren't eating. Mm. Really not hungry. Well, I brought you these. Your favourite. Jam tarts. Yeah. Now you're talking. <laughs> How would you describe their relationship? Is it easy? Elizabeth and Margaret's relationship? With so many sisters, there's rivalry, mm -hmm. there's jealousy, there's... Uh, yeah, well, considering what the Queen said no to, 
with Margaret and the fact that mm. there's forgiveness there in a way through the years that it's not, it hasn't affected the relationship. No, but I think that happens with sisters. I mean, that's my experience. Yeah. You know, you're so close to them and therefore you feel you have the right to criticise Mm -hmm. You can say all of these things because it's not like a marriage or a boyfriend that you know, you might say this stuff and then it will be over mm. and you might never see them. The, this person is in your life forever. So there's a carte blanche about how you can be with them. And I think that Elizabeth really recognised the complexities and how hard it was for Margaret. Mm. I mean, she makes that speech, doesn't she? Oh, at, the, um, at the birthday. Yeah. I mean, that whole section of the determination that this party is going to happen. She's go she's wearing those shoes. <laughs> yes, with the, with the terrible. Yeah, the burn. The, when her ankles, she burnt her ankles. Yes, yeah, horrible. Did you speak to anyone who had been around her at that time? To well, funnily enough, I know people because she mixed in this industry yeah. quite a bit. You know, I do know quite a few people who knew her and they do regale me with stories about the times that they met her. Yeah. My best friend has a photo of her parents with Margaret. I think they were in Mustique. Well, I you, know. knew, you told me you told me last time that you nearly met her in Mystique. Yes, that that was like such I'm a not telling you that fabulous story again. <laughs> you don't need to. I've got it for life now. <laughs> that was her happy place, wasn't it? Because yeah. Elizabeth even says that in in, in one of the, uh, yeah, in the she, she says, says oh, because that's where you're going. Where are you going to Mystique at the weekend? It's where you're, your happy, where you're happiest. Yeah. yeah. Well, she was. I suppose there was a freedom. You know, I mean, the pressure. You can't go out anywhere. You you know, not when they were young, which is the beauty of the seeing them young in episode eight, they could go out and they weren't recognized because the media was nothing like what it is now. Yeah. And lots of people didn't have, to, well, people generally didn't have televisions. There weren't televisions really until the coronation. So you could be anonymous, but not so in the latter years. Mm. And, you know, every time you step outside that door, you've got to be... Princess Margaret. You've got to be on. And I think that's why Margaret just did a lot. Of, well, they all did. But, you know, Margaret sort of did lo loads of soirees and people around because, you know, to yeah. have a safe place. But Mustique was that really with knobs on because she could just be in the sea. Nobody would bother her. Yeah. Green with lust and sick with shyness. Let me lick your lacquer toes. God, oh gosh, your royal highness. Put your finger <laughs> up my nose. <laughs> you gonna take anything away from her when you when you're now that you've finished with this part? Is there something from learning about this this character but but through the real the real person that it's based on as well that you're like Oh. I think it's all quite close still. Yeah. Because I have, you know, I've played other characters over the two years, but she's been there, absolutely. And two years is the longest, well, absolutely the long. I mean, I've done plays, but the, the most I've ever done a play for is five months. I've never had somebody in my bones for two years. So... 
I think it's going to take some processing. Yeah. And I think that I might go back and read the books again. All the books that I read before in the beginning, you know, to to do the research. And I had ages to do the research. So I read them in such a sort of leisurely, oh, God, what a great book. I think it would be nice now to go back. Because when you read a book and you're doing research, you know, the endless little markers I'd put, you know, practically every page was marked and there was day glow pen everywhere. And to a degree, you don't go back that much. It's almost about the process of reading it for the first time and going, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Somehow by osmosis, it, go, it goes yeah. in. But I'd love to go back to those books now because they've all got the tags still and just read them without the pressure of having to create her anymore. But hopefully the other thing I will take from her is one of her negligees. <laughs> I've been promised. I'd love one of those. And also it might make me up my game and not just slob around in an old tracksuit bottom or a pair of pyjamas. I'll just lounge around <laughs> with a cigarette and a gin and tonic. Much more stylish. Look, the blossom's out. Yes. The sun is rising. What will this future hold for us all? Aren't you coming? We can join Mummy and Papa for breakfast. I'm afraid not. But I will always be by your side. No matter what. I'm Edith Bowman, and I'd like to give special thanks to our guests on this episode, Leslie Manville, Martin Harrison, Alex Gabassi, and Mariel Shabani-Claire. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Sony Music Entertainment in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join me next time for episode nine titled Hope Street. When the Queen faces her 2002 Golden Jubilee, her confidence is at an all-time low. She struggles with personal loss, ambiguous public opinion and Mohammed Al-Fayed's public campaign to lay the blame for Diana's death on the royal family. Could the next generation be the answer? There's sometimes an advantage in bringing someone charismatic off the bench, you know, a a super sub, to to, uh, expand your appeal. And the Prince of Wales already does so much. Actually, I, I was thinking about Prince William. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.